0: If you would, take your Bibles, please. We'll have two different passages. We're going to look at Acts 17 and 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 15 first, and then later on we'll come to uh, Acts 17. But keep your fingers on 1 Corinthians 15. We'll, We'll come back to it. Today is Easter. It is a central event in scripture and indeed in human history. And I find myself trying to resist the temptation to say something new. Because what, what, what can I say that is new? This is an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. And so rather than trying to teach you something new, I would rather encourage you and just remind you um, of certain things, certain truths that we see. Today, I want us to consider four different things with regard to Easter. The first is that belief in the resurrection is a necessary condition of salvation. Paul wrote to the Romans that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, part of being a Christian means that you believe and you confess that God raised Jesus from the dead. It may seem strange to argue this, but Paul saw it as necessary, and he lays it out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. i follow along, if you would, as I read the first 11 verses here. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain." to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is the gospel, Paul tells us. It is of first importance. It's foundational. Paul gives us four statements, and it almost seems to be in the form of a creed. Each one is introduced by that, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. The third statement, that he was raised on the third day, is dependent on the first two that Christ died and that he was buried, because without death there can be no resurrection. The burial is confirmation of death, so there it's necessary. We have death, we have burial to confirm the death, and then we have resurrection, which can only happen if death has occurred. And then we have the list of his appearances, that after the resurrection, we don't just have to say, well, yeah, he he was raised from the dead. People saw him. Six appearances are listed. He appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to more than five hundred. Some of them are still alive. Some of the witnesses are still alive, but some have died. Appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then finally to Paul. There's several things to note here. This isn't a complete list. Um, Paul does mention things that are not mentioned in the Gospels, interestingly enough. Um, But this isn't a complete list. Paul includes himself in the list of those who saw the resurrected Jesus. And we don't know for sure if this happened on the road to Damascus or at another time in his life, but he did see Jesus. And on the face of it, it might seem that Paul is trying to prove the resurrection, uh, certainly by giving this list of, of people who had seen Jesus um, By the way, the resurrection is one of the things that people seek to deny. There are those who say that, yeah, Paul actually didn't see Jesus and Peter didn't either. They just had these hallucinations uh, because of their great guilt. You know, Peter denied Jesus. Paul had persecuted the church of God. And so they had this hallucination and thought that they saw Jesus, which is really interesting because as far as we know, Paul never saw Jesus uh, before his death. And so how would he know that that's who he was seeing? What Paul does is he says to the Corinthians, this is what you believed, okay? This is what you believe. Um, if you look at the beginning in verse number one, if you look at verse number 11, he says it twice, this is what you believe. That if a person is a child of God, they in fact have confessed that God raised Jesus from the dead. So that's the first thing. If we call ourselves Christians, then we must, in fact, believe the resurrection. The second thing, and here I'd have you turn uh, to Acts chapter 17. Um, This, for some of you, I think is a familiar story. This is where Paul uh, preaches in Athens. In a moment, I'll read you the entire passage. Um, But the second thing I'd have you to think about today is when Paul preaches to people who have never heard of Jesus... And they've never heard of the Gospel. The one thing that Paul tells them about Jesus is that God raised him from the dead. I mean, I find that fascinating. And I think there's something to instruct us here because we find ourselves increasingly living in a post-Christian world. And I think Paul's approach here to the Athenians at Mars Hill or Areopagus, I think, has a lot to instruct us. I finished reading a couple books recently that make the case that here in the United States we live in a post-Christian world. Anthony Esselin's Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. And then the long-anticipated Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Um, if you accept that that's the world we live in, then I think what, what, how Paul approaches this whole business is important to us. If you look at verse number 31, uh, we'll, I'll read the entire bit, uh, uh, passage in a bit. But he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This is what he tells us about Jesus. By the way, he doesn't mention him by name. He doesn't mention the virgin birth, you know, that he was miraculously conceived. He doesn't talk about the miracles that Jesus did, the healings. The raising the dead, feeding thousands. I think this would interest the Greeks. He doesn't even tell us about the teachings of Jesus or the death of Jesus in the manner of it that he was crucified. The one thing he mentions is that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a resurrection. It shouldn't surprise us because if you look at verse number 18, a group of Epicurean Uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because uh, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When Paul is asked to speak to the Areopagus, he begins not by talking about Jesus, but talking about God as creator, the preaching of the gospel must begin with the identification of God as the one who created all things. For the Greeks, this is not something they want to hear. They despise the material world, that this, this is all inferior, that the, the spirit is superior. And yet Paul begins basically in Genesis 1.1 when he talks about the gospel. Now, if you would follow along as I begin reading in verse number 16, and we'll read through to Verse 31. While Paul was waiting for them, that is, his companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city, that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange new ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Verse 21, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they want to hear what Paul has to say. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "'Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. "'For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, "'I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. "'Now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. "'The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth "'and does not live in temples built by hands.' And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him. From the dead. Paul speaks of a God who lovingly made all things. Biblical Christianity does not hate the material world. We do not hate the world of space and time, which limits us. Rather, we say that God created the world. He created space and time, all things in it, and he placed us, those he has created, in this place. The message of Christ, the message of the church, is a proclamation of salvation within the story of creation. If we don't tell the story of creation, then we have failed to tell the gospel. Usually when we hear the message of the gospel, we hear of the cross and an empty tomb. The death of Jesus accomplishes our resurrection and signifies for us the love of God for his people. But we may in fact fail to appreciate the full significance of this. God is not finished with his creation. He has not given up on the project of creation. In a book that came out several years ago, Oliver O'Donovan, uh, the book was called Resurrection in uh, Moral Order, made the observation, it might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead for someone to wonder whether creation was a lost cause. As before resurrection, we might think, "It's, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, there's nothing you can do. If the creature consistently acted to uncreate itself, I think there's a powerful way of speaking of sin, and with itself to uncreate the rest of creation, did this not mean that God's handiwork was flawed beyond any hope of repair? It might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead to answer in good faith, yes, it's all over. Before God raised Jesus from the dead, the hope we call Gnostic, the hope for redemption from creation rather than for the redemption of creation, might have appeared to be the only possible hope. Yeah, let's just get us out of here, because this is, it's, it's messed up. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That fact rules out those other possibilities. For in the second Adam, the first Adam is rescued. The deviance of his will, its faithful leaning toward death, has not been allowed to uncreate what God created. This means that resurrection is not only a sign of God's love for his people. It is that. And it is not only evidence that Christ has successfully accomplished the work of atonement. It does that. The resurrection is God's reaffirmation of his whole creation. By bringing to life the Lord Jesus, he who is God and man, we see creation at the center of the story. So the biblical story not only tells us who God is as creator, but it also tells us about creation itself and the nature of human nature. So we affirm that, in fact, God made the world, he ordered the world, our life has been given to us by God, and our very nature is defined by God. The third thing that we should remember on this Easter Sunday is that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. All of life, in fact, is colored by the resurrection. We may not see this, we may not recognize it, but it is, in fact, the case. We tend, I think, to make a separation that God created the world, but then over here he's going to save us. So creation over here and redemption here. And I think resurrection says, no, 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 no. They come together. That Jesus was raised. His body was brought back to life. This shouldn't surprise us that the two are together because we see it in the Old Testament. Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. That is to say, God is the creator. But then the psalmist goes on. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. This is redemption. The two go together. In the New Testament, Jesus is seen as savior but he is also the creator. It isn't one or the other. It isn't as though God creates and Jesus saves, or these are two separate realities that this is all gonna burn up and we get to go to heaven and there's not gonna be you know, any, any more difficulties. The two go together, creation and redemption. But you know, perhaps, this is something I should have dealt with at the beginning, what is resurrection? What do we mean when we talk about resurrection? Before I get to that, I would just point out that this is something that offends many people. And we find it in the, in the scriptures. Uh, people are listening, they're listening, they're listening, as with the case with Paul. They have no problem, apparently, that he believes God made the world and that God set the boundaries and all this. But then when he talks about the resurrection, people are like, okay, that's it. You're, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. After Pentecost... We read the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It's just unacceptable. When Paul gave his defense of the gospel in front of the governor Festus and King Agrippa, when it came to the matter of the resurrection, At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. See, Resurrection is not something everyone accepts and we need to understand that it is something that really offends people. Just one more thing before we talk specifically about resurrection. There is no aspect of the church, no form of early Christianity in which the resurrection was not the central belief. This is what marked them as Christians. And those who did not accept the gospel did not because of resurrection. What does resurrection mean? Well, what we have to do is look at what happened to Jesus. Jesus, in fact, did die. Some people have questioned that. Uh, People have said maybe he just passed out. I've mentioned this before, and this is from N.T. Wright, that the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it. They knew how to do it. They were extremely effective. The empire was built on it. Jesus died. So before we can even get to today as Easter, we have to look at Good Friday and recognize that Jesus, in fact, died. In the ancient world, and for many people today, whether they recognize it or not, death is seen as all-powerful. That which people wish to escape, but they believe no one can. No one can break its power. Once it has come, it's a one-way street. There's no coming back. And resurrection says, yes, there is. But for people who see death as the greatest power in the world, this just does not seem possible. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 because the Corinthian believers did believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. They just didn't think it was going to happen for them. And Paul points out, and we'll see it in a bit, if it doesn't happen for you, it didn't happen for Jesus, that the two resurrections are in fact one and the same. (coughs) If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me read to you several verses. Beginning in verse number 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So based on this, the one who has experienced resurrection, Jesus, sets the pattern for us. What will it be like for us? Well, in the rest of the chapter, which I won't read uh, at this point, the body is not abandoned. Resurrection involves the body. The body will be changed. Present physicality will, in fact, be transformed. No longer will there be weakness or sickness or death. Um, but the body will be transformed. Resurrection is not uh, no no body involved, and neither is it a reviving of the body, it is a transforming of the body. See, the problem is not that we have bodies. I think for a lot of people that is a problem. Not in the Christian faith, God made us. Paul tells the Athenians this. The problem is the body breaks down as we get older, as we get sick, it just doesn't work the way that it should. And it is seen as limiting, and we don't like those limitations. But the reality is God made us, and sin has done its worst on us. But in the resurrection, God will reclaim and transform our bodies. There will be a re-embodied existence. The answer is not get rid of the body. The answer is for the body to be changed, not resuscitated, recreated. In verses 35 through 49, Paul deals with different kinds of physicality. Uh, In one example, he uses you plant a seed and a plant comes up. The plant doesn't look exactly like the seed. In fact, it looks quite different. But we see in the resurrected Jesus that he was recognized by his disciples. There was that physical aspect that he was recognizable. In the same way, in a way that goes beyond our ability to understand when we are resurrected, we will have bodies that I think we will, in fact, be able to recognize one another, but without our defects and our flaws. We will continue to have bodies and be embodied. One might ask, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? So what? So we get resurrected, we have a new body, so what? What is the big deal? Well, I think, on the one hand, people see what happens after death as escapist. And so our view of our hope after death is seen as a way to escape. You know, like, life is hard, then you die, but then hopefully you can escape into some type of existence. Uh, But this isn't what happened with Jesus. Jesus, in fact, was put to death in a most cruel way, and he was buried, but then he was raised again. The resurrection is not a form of escape. It is to be a cause for great joy. We read in Luke 24 that the people stayed continually at the temple praising God because of the resurrection. The people in the early church knew something that we have forgotten. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning. We are in the last days. And when Jesus returns, there will be this resurrection of all of his people. As he was resurrected, so we will be raised. This is what shaped their behavior. It should shape ours. I'm not sure that it does. The fourth thing that I want us to consider is the importance of physicality. I've been talking about it for a few moments now already. Um. But to remind you of what Paul told the the men of Areopagus, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. See, God is the one who created us, the one who sets forth our nature, This nature has been corrupted by sin, and God, through his son, is seeking to redeem us. Part of living in a post-Christian world, I'm convinced, hinges on the issue of what it means to be human. Because people reject God as the creator and reject humanity as made in the image of God, then what it means to be human has become, in fact, questionable. And the body, because of its limitations, is seen as something to be jettisoned. For the last 15 years, people have now been speaking of being post human. I think 2002 is when it first showed up. Ellen Ullman wrote an article for Harper's called Programming the Post Human. And then Francis Fukuyama, who wrote The End of History and The Last Man, came out with a book the same year Our Post Human Future. And there is an increasing belief by people that we are going soon to make a quantum leap in evolution and we are going to be, we're going to get rid of these horrible things we call human bodies. We'll be able to transform our consciousness or transfer them into supercomputers or we will find ways uh, to make sure that we never get sick and that we never die. That the limitation of the body is seen as something that is to be rejected. So what it means to be human has been set aside. And I think the thing that is set aside is the physical aspect. That you are in fact defined by your body is something that people reject. To be human now seems to mean that you can invent your own nature. That you can decide what it means to be human. That the essence of being human is sheer will. I will be who or what I want to be. What we find in scripture is quite the reverse. As Paul tells the Athenians, God made the, he- uh, the earth. He made human beings. What we find in scripture is that the nature of being human has been established by God, since we are made in his image. The Bible tells us that we are particular kinds of creatures. We live in a particular kind of world. And the rules for living in this world are not arbitrary. God is not some celestial meanie trying to make our lives miserable. He has given us instructions to live in a way that is in concert with the way he made the world. Take, for example, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments basically, I think, if you look at each one, define what it means to be human. You know, there's no, no other God. You know, God is the one who made us. You're supposed to honor your father and your mother. You didn't just pop up on your own. You, in fact, came from two parents. But let's look at the fourth commandment specifically. The longest of all the commandments, it's the one on the Sabbath. Interestingly enough, I think the one we want to get rid of quicker than all the others. It tells us that one day a week is to be set apart, that we are to work for six days and then rest one day a week. It tells us that there is such a thing as a week that there is such a thing as time, and we were created to live in time. We are creatures of time. Genesis tells us that God made the sun and the moon and stars to help order time. We have the seasons, the days, and the years. There is to be a rhythm to our lives. The fourth commandment tells us it's a good thing to live in time, to recognize that there are six days for work and one for rest. I think culturally we do not accept this. We do not want to be bound by time. Um, we want to be able and to do whatever we want whenever we want. And because of electricity, for example, we can stay up all night. Um, we can do things at night that in the past, previous generations, people were not able to do. So the idea that there is a limitation, that there is, in fact, one day that is the Lord's day, that is a day of rest, it, it, it rubs us the wrong way. But God is the one who made us. This is what it means to be human. This is human nature. The fourth commandment presupposes that work and rest are good for us. Work is not a bad thing. It's not a four-letter word to be avoided. It's not because Adam and Eve sinned. It's not because the world is messed up. It's because we're made in the image of one who is always at work, and that is God our Father. Rest is not something that should be the exhausted collapse of someone who is so stressed out from the previous six days that they can do nothing but just collapse. But it is, in fact, to be a time to be content and to rest in God. Resurrection tells us that being human and having a body is fine. It is good. The goodness of our existence as physical beings is, in fact, something to be embraced. I think if you were to ask many Christians today, did Jesus die for your body? I think they would say, no. He died for my soul. He died to save my soul. In fact, evangelism is oftentimes called soul winning resurrection tells us no. Jesus died for my soul, but he also died for my body. And that is proven by the reality of the resurrection. Otherwise, Jesus could have died and just gone to heaven and and that was it. But our bodies are important, so important that Jesus died so that one day my body will be resurrected. If we reject the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, then we reject the possibility of our own resurrection and we deny what it means to be human. We deny the physicality of what it means to be human. And we imagine that some ethereal spiritual existence is far superior to what God has given us. And we deny the importance of God making us as he did. So on this Easter, we should remember that the resurrection affirms our physicality, that Jesus died to redeem our bodies. We, we affirm that it is the basis of our faith, that it is the message that we are to convey. It is what we confess. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 to counteract um, some misconceptions of the, the Corinthian believers about the resurrection. They did believe that Jesus was raised. They just didn't think it would happen to them. So if you would, our last passage to read here in 1 Corinthians 15 again, beginning in verse number 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found. We are then found to be false witnesses about God. It's fascinating there when he talks about resurrection. It's false witnesses about God, God the creator. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. For Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. Paul will later go on to say that if in fact there's no resurrection, we should eat, drink, and be married. Tomorrow we will die. And I think, on on one hand, you could say, yeah, that means that there's no hope, so you might as well just live it up. But I think there's something else. If you do not believe in the resurrection, then you might as well eat all you can, drink all you can, do everything you can with your bodies, because you're not going to have a body anymore. Well, no. We are going to have a body. And we know from Jesus that we're going to eat. After the resurrection. Because he did. Okay. So the resurrection is proof. Of what God is going to do for us. That God loves us. He made us. This isn't something just to be jettisoned. But one day this will be remade. Recreated. And we will be resurrected as Jesus was. It also means. That death is not all powerful. Near the end of this chapter. Paul will write. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, that is, when I am raised from the dead and this perishable body is made imperishable and the corruptible with, uh, with the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory. And on this day, by God's grace, we recognize that truth. Let's pray together. Father, Resurrection, Easter, these are things we talk about or occasionally, but perhaps we don't think about in a deep way. It doesn't seem to affect our behavior. Help us to see that it is, in fact, the basis of the gospel, the gospel that we are to share with unbelievers. It is what we confess. And it affirms that you made us you made us not only with souls, but also with bodies. And that Jesus died not only for our souls, but for our bodies as well. That the project of, cre- of creation is headed toward recreation, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. This has all been made possible because Jesus suffered and died. He has redeemed all things to himself. I thank you that on this particular day we can be reminded of this in a powerful way. And I ask that by your grace and your spirit it would in fact affect the way that we live. Thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday. Thank you for all your many gifts. And we think particularly of those celebrating birthdays, of the the years you have given to them. May you give them many more lives in these bodies here on earth where you have put us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.